After the Virus, Episode 20, brought to you by After the Virus, a Survivorless Journal, available at Amazon.com as an ebook or paperback, or available locally in Chico at the bookstore. First, it was just one, Will, all alone. Then came Hope, and Will's existence gained purpose. Laurel made three enduring survivalists. In this episode, their universe expands exponentially as they join a clan of guerrilla fighters dedicated to eliminating the paramilitary force and determining the truth behind the coded broadcasts. At the end of episode 19, Will had just discovered a tripwire. This is not an animal trap. This is an alarm system for somebody. He explained. Backing up slowly, we then took another path around the booby trap trail. Peering ahead, Laurel pointed out a meat pole running horizontally between two trees. On it were three fresh, smallish, skinned, and gutted carcasses, which Will guessed were raccoons. Again, we backed up and looked for a new route south that avoided what was clearly an occupied area. Farther away from the river, we worked our way through a bushy walnut orchard. Thousands of unharvested walnuts littered the ground so we collected them as we went, filling our pockets and shirts with nuts to eat later. We passed the remains of a burned-down house and vandalized barn with no signs of humans. By dusk, we reached the banks of Deer Creek where it flowed into the Sacramento River, cracked and ate walnuts and some venison. And for now, we will sleep in shifts with one person always on guard. Lots of animal noises during my shift. February 14th. Starting the day heading up Deer Creek looking for a shallow spot to cross, eventually finding a place where we were able to stay dry from the waist up. Heading back down the opposite side of the creek, coming again to the river, then heading south for a few hundred yards, before coming upon what looked to have been a war zone. What had apparently once been a riverside campground, an RV park, had been reduced to rubble, with impact craters, splintered trees, and charred trailers spread over half a mile. A bridge crossing the river here had been damaged, but repaired enough for a vehicle to presumably cross. On the opposite side of the river are skeletal remains of mobile homes and a mini-mart. We skirt the devastated area as much as possible and continue downriver. It begins to rain lightly midday, and we continued along the river over a plain of mixed grasslands and cottonwoods. There is lots of game here, so we set up a rain tarp for a well-sheltered campsite and put out some snares. Then I went hunting with my bow. I saw lots of deer, but was unable to get close enough for a shot. The snares produced one ground squirrel and one brush rabbit, which we stew for dinner, with some cattails over a small fire, with enough left over for breakfast. February 15th. Rained hard all night, but we stay dry under the tarp, all huddled for warmth. Will and Laurel seem to be developing a fondness for each other. I can hear it in the way they speak to each other. I wonder just what's going on there. It continued to rain all day, so we told stories, worked on equipment, and checked our snares, which had two more brush rabbits. The fresh meat is enjoyed by all, 
Will shared his thoughts with us and where he thinks we should go. He thinks that we should generally move towards Oakland, 150 to 200 miles away. Until we could get updated information on the nature of the radio broadcast we had heard weeks ago. We will try to get hold of another radio or watch for a safe opportunity to interact with some people who can provide us with an update. We all agree on this plan. February 16th. More rain. The river is rising and starting to flood many of the gravel bars and plains that we have been traveling. And every little slough and depression is filling with water, making the idea of travel unsavory. The good news is that ducks have moved into little ponds and I'm able to shoot a fat mallard with my bow. The continuing rain has us bored and restless. February 17th. The rain cleared, so we started downriver again. The flooding forced us to move east, away from the river and towards the highway and ranch houses. We find a network of gravel roads to follow, sneaking into the bush to avoid coming close to a couple of large, but mostly ruined barns. Coming near to a mostly intact shop building, I suggest going inside to look for a radio. Will and Laurel cover me with rifles while I look through the windows. The windows are too dirty and it is too dark to see inside. So I break out a pane of glass and crawl into the building. There is a pickup truck parked inside that is unlocked with keys in it. So I turn the key and turn the radio on and get static. Scrolling through the various volumes of static, I eventually come to the same coded tone patterns that we originally deciphered. I unlock the door and motion Will to join me, while Laurel kept watch. We threw our packs in the bed of the truck while we concentrated on the tones. After listening and comparing, we concluded that this was the same set of messages with no changes, just an endless repetition. Suddenly, Laurel yelled, Truck coming! Without thinking, Will turned the key in the pickup and it started. He burst through the barn door, yelled to Laurel to jump in the back. We sped away from the building with no idea where we were headed. The large truck a quarter mile behind us saw us immediately and sped up to try to catch us. Laurel, grab the rifle and get ready to shoot when I tell you. Hope, have the pistol ready, Will shouted. My gun was in my hands in a flash, and I walked through the rear window as Laurel systematically checked that the gun was loaded and readied additional bullets. Will's pistol was in a holster on his belt. I would have been terrified of Will's driving if I hadn't been so focused on the truck pursuing us. We slid around corners on the gravel road, narrowly avoiding careening into ditches and orchards. The truck behind us was huge and darkly ominous blowing puffs of black smoke every time it sped up. It was gaining on us slowly as we twisted and turned from one dirt road to another. When we hit a long straight section, we could see muzzle flashes and hear the booming of shots being fired at us. But not a single one hit the truck as Will swerved continuously back and forth. When we approached a wooded section, Will yelled, When I stop, jump out and find cover quick and get ready to shoot! Rounding a corner with the dense trees on either side, Will skidded the truck into a tight opening between trees. We jumped out and hid. Moments later, our pursuers slammed on the brakes as they came around the curve. Will shouted, Shoot! And all three of us unloaded our guns at the truck window. The rig went out of control, crashing into a thick black walnut. 
The hood popped, the radiator exploded, and airbags flopped out of the windows. Ducking back behind our trees, we reloaded quickly and peered back out at the truck. There was no movement, and the only sound was the cracking of a two-way radio. Will motioned us to wait quietly and cover him while he investigated the truck. Circling carefully around the rear of the truck, he moved forward to peer into the bed, flashing a quick thumbs up without looking at us. Keeping close to the truck's passenger side, with his gun drawn, he inched forward to look inside. He stared intently, then stuck his gun in the window and prodded. He pulled out a long gun, then did some more prodding. Satisfied that the occupants were dead, he said softly but clearly, Oof, nothing you want to see here. Then holding up a finger, he pursed his lips and gave a wait, shh, gesture, and cocked his head as if to listen. We've got to get away from here. There's more coming. Just heard them on the radio. Our chances of being undetected seemed better on foot than in the vehicle. So after grabbing some of their ammo, we took off at a silent run in the general direction of the river. After about ten minutes, we could hear the chopping sounds of a helicopter behind us. Rather than circling around looking for us, we heard them land and turn off the engine. Then we heard a frightening sound, the baying of hounds. The water's our only chance! Will instructed as we doubled our pace. We heard the added excitement in the dogs' voices as they picked up our trail and knew that if we didn't find the river soon, we were going to have big trouble. The vegetation varied from open forests to dense brush and downed logs, and we were perspiring heavily as we ran with full packs in the chill air. We could hear the dogs getting very close, but had no idea how far the river was or just how we were going to swim it with our gear in the middle of winter. We could hear other animals, presumably deer, that seemed to also be running from the dogs, close to us, but out of sight. Suddenly, we heard one of the dogs yip and whine as though injured, and then stop barking. Within seconds, we heard another, then another, and another until all the dogs were silenced, and we sensed they were no longer pursuing us. Almost simultaneously, we heard bursts of gunfire, Then an explosion from the direction the helicopter had landed. We slowed our pace to catch our breath and again heard what sounded like other animals keeping pace with us on either side. Will raised his gun. Those aren't deer. They're humans. Be ready. We all raised our guns in preparation for an attack. Put down your guns. We have you surrounded. A deep voice shouted, which seemed pretty clear to us now. Defeatedly, we lowered our weapons, but I could see Will's mind racing for a solution. We're the reason you're alive. We took care of those dogs for you, said the voice. And seemingly out of thin air stepped a huge, well-camouflaged man with a full graying beard, holding a four-foot-long blowgun. I'm Travis, and this is my family, he said as a half-dozen similarly dressed men and women emerged from the shadows. And any enemy of those guys is a friend of ours. You pulled a nice move on them back there. How do we know your friends? And how do we know you're safe? Asked Will pointedly. Travis chuckled amiably and said, 
Although you don't seem to have much choice, I will tell you that we are part of the Survivalist Network and we are committed to fighting against the militias. But come on, let's get to a safer place where we can talk at length. We want to hear about who you are and how you survived this long. After months of paranoia and justified suspicion of everyone we encountered, the calming voice of this man and the presence of his family lured us into acceptance of his offer. I could see Will's shoulders relax and the resignation on his face as tears ran down Laurel's cheeks. And I suddenly felt a sense of optimism I had not experienced in a very long time. Lead the way, friend, said Will. With that, we fell in line behind Travis and marched to their home. Long day. We'll describe in detail tomorrow. February 18th. Awoke in an amazing place, feeling safer than I have in months. We are underground, kind of, in what Travis has called a Maidu roundhouse. A circular pit about 40 feet in diameter and 4 feet deep. The inside of which is reinforced with logs, then a log roof which has been covered with soil, so that it looks like nothing more than a mound. Travis and his group built it soon after the virus hit, in a woodland area near the river, and now it is covered with live grasses and vines, and it is completely camouflaged from the air. It is modeled after the traditional roundhouse of the Maidu people, who lived here before they were wiped out or assimilated. Travis's family is actually composed of just one surviving family member, his 18-year-old nephew, Ethan, and another seven like-minded people he met fleeing the chaos, both men and women, plus a three-year-old named Aiden. I was told their names, but I don't remember them all. They seem educated, logical, and strategic, and they are armed for an all-out war. They refer to themselves as the Survivalists' Resistance and spend most of their time aiding refugees like us and sabotaging paramilitary forces. They were heading towards the outposts that our pursuers had come from, an old steakhouse that had been commandeered near the village of Vina. We had led the enemy right into their path. The family had been on their way to blow up the outpost. The 40-foot circle is meticulously arranged into living, sleeping, and working spaces. The working spaces include a workshop, weapons area, a food processing area, where game and foraged foods are prepared for consumption or storage, a sewing and hide tanning area. A fire pit in the center was where the group met to take counsel or socialize. Various types of cots, and low sleeping platforms were spaced about four feet apart. Unfortunately, there were enough extra for Will, Laurel, and I. We've lost a few good people in the last couple of months, Travis said solemnly. When we arrived yesterday evening, we were fed a delicious game porridge. Then afterwards, we assembled around the fire and relayed the story of how we escaped the virus and the militias and described the long trek we had taken and all that had happened to us. Well, we all have complicated stories, but I must say that yours takes the cake for the most roundabout journey. Travis chuckled <laughs> along with the rest of the group. <laughs> then they took turns asking us many questions about things we had seen and heard. They were amazed by our accounts of being attacked by the crazed animals in the mountains, 
by our encounter with the Zeeks, but their eyes all lit up when we spoke about the broadcast code. You broke the code, did you? Well done. That was designed to be difficult so that not just anyone would show up. Were you involved in creating the message? I asked. No, Hope. And we don't know exactly who did. But clearly, it was crafted to assure that most people would not be able to interpret it. Call it intellectually biased. The fact that our contacts in the resistant movement don't know who is generating the message is worrisome. Are we being offered salvation or lured into a trap? Nevertheless, we plan to be at the Port of Oakland by March 15th, and you're welcome to join us. How will we get there? It's a long way, and there's a large force in our path, said Laurel. It's going to be dangerous for sure, interjected Ethan. We could probably walk there in a week of long days if we didn't have to worry about being shot. We have intel on where most of the outposts are. That'll help, and we know of some safe houses along the way. Traveling as a large group is going to make it more challenging to go undetected, said Will. Yes, we've been thinking about that, and we think that staggering ourselves by traveling in small groupings will be the best way to go, not necessarily even following the same paths. Will you help us develop the plan? We should probably depart within a couple of weeks. Thank you. I'd like that, said Will. The fire was doused and I was shown to my cot where I had the best sleep that I could remember since Warner Valley. The place is now buzzing, and people are working on coffee and breakfast. I must go help. February 19th. I thought that I was tired when we were surviving in the mountains, but these people start working at daylight, and don't quit until well into the evening. I've been so worn out that I haven't had the energy to write in a few days. Will, Laurel, and I have each been assigned to different tasks. Will has been working with Travis and a tall, lean man named Chris on route planning, equipment repair, and weapons preparation. Laurel has been helping two other women, Heather and Katie, with the winter garden, foraging and sewing. I was assigned to help Ethan check animal snares and booby traps. Not at all unpleasant, as Ethan is smart, confident, skilled, and handsome. Thanks again for the pleasure of your company, and don't forget to order the ebook or paperback at Amazon.com or locally in Chico at the bookstore.